Amen. Would you pray with me this morning? Glory, honor, and praise are due your name, Father. You are the one who makes all and sees all and provides all. We thank you for sustaining us, for holding all things together by your word. We rejoice in your promise to make all things perfect and new again. It is a great comfort to our souls to know we can approach you. We know that it is through Christ's finished work that he has made a way for us to draw near to you. We celebrate. We celebrate the wonderful privilege and the blessings of prayer. All our hurts, our joys, our concerns, our needs, you gladly hear. Not only do you listen, but you provide perfectly for us. Father, our world is filled with animosity. It's filled with hatred. It's filled with selfishness. It's manifested in so many ways. Ways that simply take the breath away. We are confident that you love and care for this broken world. We are sure that you have a glorious plan to restore this world. We pray that your glory would be revealed for all to see. We pray that your power and your beauty will call sinners unto yourself. We pray that you will display your love through their redemption. Today, Lord, we're reminded about the preciousness of family. Today, we're encouraged to think about our responsibilities. We pray that you might give us the passion and the courage to live under your providence. That you would teach us and equip us to live by your word and through your power. Or deliver us from the desire to live for self. For the impulses, Lord, to pursue temptation. Enable us to resist the pressure to please broken people. Instead, fill us with a desperate desire to please only you. May that be evident in the way that we live each and every day. May that be evident in the way that we lead our families. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. Psalm 127. What a great What a great text from the Lord this is. A great encouragement. It's about divine providence. About divine providence in domestic issues, domestic lives, our lives, daily living. It focuses on the hidden activity of the Lord in building a house, in protecting a city, in prospering one's labor, and in providing children for the family. There are several reasons that this psalm is credited to Solomon. To Solomon, David's son, Solomon, right? Uh, For instance, he speaks about the Lord building a house. This is referencing, you remember David wanted to build a house for the Lord and the Lord would not allow it because he said David had shed blood. He was a military man and so he chose Solomon to do so in 2 Samuel 7. The psalm also places a 
a great deal of emphasis on the theme of vanity, which we learned in our study through Ecclesiastes is something near and dear to Solomon's heart, right? Thinking about vanity, emptiness, futility. The psalm also talks about the Lord giving sleep. This could be a reference to God giving wisdom to Solomon in his work leading the people as king. And he also uses this term, beloved, which was a name that God gave to Solomon in 2 Samuel 12 when he called him Jedidiah, which means truly beloved of the Lord. So all these things make a good case for crediting the psalm to Solomon. The text contrasts God's blessing with the futility of doing things without God. We're reminded of Jesus in John chapter 15 when he says, Apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. Not some things, not most things, but nothing. That seems to be at the heart of this psalm. The psalmist affirms that total dependence on divine interventions alone ensures worthwhile and successful domestic enterprises. Then he illustrates the divine blessing through the gift of children who defend and prolong the family, provide security for the family. So I want to begin, before we dive into breaking the, um, the text apart a little bit and seeing what's in there, I want to think about this idea of God's providence. It's something that we talk a lot about. We throw around terms like sovereignty and providence a lot, but I think it's worthwhile to think about what we're actually speaking of. When we think about providence, it's built on the word provide, established on this word, provide. Provide means to supply what is needed. It means to give sustenance or support. Providence has been defined this way. The act, God's act, of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Let me say that again. The act of purposely, with intent, providing for, sustaining, and governing the world. In Genesis chapter 22, you remember the story of Abraham after Isaac was born. And remember God told Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to go to the land of Moriah to a place, a mountain that I will tell you. And there I want you to sacrifice your son. You remember the story? So Abraham took Isaac, he took firewood, and he went up on the mountain. And you remember what Isaac asked him? He said, Father, I see the firewood, but... Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And what did Abraham say? God will provide. God will provide, and God did provide. As Abraham was ready to plunge the knife into the bosom of his son and take his life according to the direction of the Lord, God stopped him, and there on top of the mountain he provided a lamb. He provided a sacrifice suitable for his purpose. A substitute, if you will. And the scripture says that that place was called Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And if we were to break that down a little bit more, it means that the Lord will see. Will see. And I would extrapolate that a little bit more and say that the Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to it. 
The Lord will accomplish what He has prescribed to be done. C.H. Spurgeon preached a message called God's Providence. In that message, he said some things that are worth us hearing again here today. I want to share those with you, so bear with me. This is what he said. He said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff which the hand, from the hand of the winner is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphis, aphis over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of dry leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He that believes in a God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between a mighty God that worketh all things by the sovereign counsel of His will and no God at all. He said you can't split the difference. You've got to be all in on the God who is providential in every single iota of creation. Or you've got to be an atheist. You can't split the difference. A God that cannot do as He pleases, a God whose will is frustrated, is not a God and cannot be a God. I could not believe in such a God as that. Later, in the same message, he said this, You will say this morning, our minister is a fatalist. Your minister is no such thing, he said. Some will say, ah, he believes in fate. He does not believe in fate at all. What is fate? Fate is this, whatever is, must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the things must be. Providence says God moves the wheels along and there they are. If anything would go wrong, God puts it right. And if there is anything that would move awry, He puts His hand and alters it. It comes to the same thing, but there is a difference as to the object. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. Fate is a blind thing. It is the avalanche crushing the village down below and destroying thousands. Providence is not an avalanche. It is a rolling river, rippling at the first like a rill down the sides of the mountain, followed by minor streams till it rolls into the broad ocean of everlasting love, working for the good of the human race. The doctrine of providence is not that what is must be, but that what is works together for the good of our race, and especially for the good of the chosen people of God. Herman Bavink said this about providence. He said, providence is not merely foreknowledge, but involves God's active will ruling all things by preservation, through concurrence, and government. Millard Erickson said, Providence of God is His continuing action for preserving His creation and guiding it toward His intended purposes. Providence is central. It's central to the conduct of the Christian life. It means that we live in the assurance that God is present and active in our lives at all times. 
There's never a time in your life that God is not actively orchestrating, ordaining, and working to accomplish His purpose. We are in His care and can therefore face the future confidently. It doesn't matter if things are going to suit us or if things are troubling us or very difficult for us. We must rest in the fact that God is providentially moving all these things toward His ultimate purpose. And in that, we have confidence, assurance, peace, satisfaction. Wayne Grudem said God's providence means God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that He keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which He created them. He upholds them by the word of His power. Hebrews and Colossians both tell us. He cooperates with created things in every action. In other words, this is not dismissing man's responsibility to act in certain ways. There is a mystery here. God's providence is working, and at the same time, there's a concurrence with human activity. And He directs them to fulfill His purposes. So in this text this morning, the psalmist gives us a proposition, and then he gives us an illustration to point to the proposition of what he's talking about. So let's unpack this a little bit this morning. First of all, the proposition from the psalmist. He says, God's providence here is our hope for meaning and contentment in life. God's providence is our hope for meaning and contentment or satisfaction in life. He says, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. Now, he uses three negative ways to express this. Sometimes that's more effective than trying to state it in a positive fashion, isn't it? Let's think about building a house. What's he, what's he talking about? Scripture uses house building in three senses. It talks about a tangible physical structure like the one in which we're gathered in today, the one which you will return to after this is over when you go into your house. It also talks about building a house as to found and rear a family, establishing a house, your family. Or it can mean establishing and founding a state or a kingdom. Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. Boaz, you remember, redeemed Ruth and brought her into his house. Ruth 4.11 says this, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So let's, let's unpack this proposition. What is he saying? First of all, he tells us domestic activities are pointless and powerless without God. They are pointless and powerless and powerless. They have no meaning. There is no meaningfulness there. There is no satisfaction or contentment apart from God. This is the mistake that our world around us is making today. It's living for the sake of the now, the here and now. This is futile. He clearly indicates that humans minimize God's providence. We don't think about God's providence until it suits our purpose. When we can make some kind of sense of it. 
He describes the negative position in three ways. Building without faith in the Lord is fruitless and futile. A tangible edifice. You can build a house. When I used to travel to India, I remember seeing these, these buildings being constructed. And it always puzzled me, on the side of these construction sites, on the side of these buildings, there would be something that looked like a uh, scarecrow, uh, you know, a man-made dummy hanging on the side. And I asked some of the natives that we traveled with, I said, what, why did they put those out? And they said, they're there to chase away the evil spirits. Now, you can live your life on superstition, or you can rest in the providence of God. Which would you prefer? Far too often, we trust in the superstitions that man has created. Building without faith in the Lord is fruitless. You can build your family without God. You can build your family on your own intuition, your own ingenuity. Your own desires, our world is constantly doing that, isn't it? We bring children into the world and we map out their futures. We spend their whole childhood trying to develop a resume to get them into college and into a prosperous life. Not many think about doing what these families did this morning in committing themselves to rearing their children under the admonition, under the teaching of God, according to God's Word. Trusting in His providence. You can build a church using modern programs and formulas and statistics. There's lots of things, hoops you can jump through to entice people to come in and warm a pew on a Sunday. But that isn't really building God's house, is it? We trust Him to do the building through the teaching and equipping and operation of His Word. You can build a career on your own thoughts and ideas. You can build a career based on greed and ruthlessness. Do unto others before they do unto you. Walk over those to get to higher ground that lie in your way. Or you can rest in the providence of God. You can build a nation on these fundamental truths. We see that playing out every day in the news right now, don't we? As Putin is trying to establish a nation and a legacy based upon his own ruthlessness and ego. and He's taking the lives of innocent people who stand in the way or hinder that process. Or you can try to build a kingdom rather than God's kingdom. God says His ways are always the right ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts greater than our thoughts. He's working toward His perfect end. And the psalmist is making the case that unless we trust in God, unless we lean into His providence, everything else is futile and empty. If we're doing it in our own strength, according to our own wisdom, motivated by our own purposes, it will always prove Futile and fruitless. Not only is he talking about building a house, according, letting the Lord build the house, but he's also talking about protecting. Finding security apart from God is ineffectual and useless. Finding protection, designing protection for anything apart from God is equally futile and empty. We have varying degrees of first responders, 
whether it be fire, whether it be police, whether it be security of any nation. We have the best military in the world here in our country. Are we trusting in these systems to protect us? Or are we trusting in God's providential care and provision? Society is filled with hostility, anger, violence. We've seen that played out again right here in our own country this week. We see and hear the threats of domestic violence because people are not getting their way. So who are we trusting for protection? What happens when these systems fail? The systems that we put together. Where do we go then? This is when we find ourselves struggling to make sense of things. When we we find ourselves despairing because our best laid plans have not been successful. But, the psalmist says, for those who trust not in themselves, in staying awake, in guarding the walls, being watchmen on the walls, but in trusting God, they have peace, they have meaning, they have satisfaction. What about those who labor anxiously to provide for themselves? This is front page news as well for us, isn't it? I was reading this week that the current inflation rate is 8.8%. Not to discourage or cause you despair this morning. But if you've been looking at retirement accounts and things of that nature, you may be feeling a little bit down this week. Well, let me encourage you. Stop looking at those things. The Lord says that He provides for the birds and the grass of the fields. And if you put Him first and seek His righteousness, that He will take care of everything else you need. Now I know that in Western civilization, in modern America, those of us who think we have made our own prosperity, that we have made our own good fortune, that it's hard for us to trust in a God that we often don't believe actually had anything to do with where we are and what we have. We need to rethink that carefully. 8.8% inflation while wages have gone up 5.5%. I don't care where you are and whose economy you're operating, that's not a good comparison, right? 5.5% wage increase would be great and fantastic in any economy if the inflation rate were less. What do we do? We fret, we agonize, we increase our efforts, we take extra jobs, we try to manipulate the market, we've got to figure some way out of this. This is what he's describing. They labor, they labor with great intensity to provide for themselves. Now, I'm not saying that we should not work hard or be industrious. I think that would be unbiblical as well. But what is being described here is an exhausting, debilitating labor that's filled with anxiety and stress. That's not God's plan. The family's life then becomes one of fear and worry and fret over the future and about the future. Rather than trusting in Yahweh, the psalmist offers a graphic contrast. Rather than a life of self-trust, self-reliance that ends in futility and stress, He tells us that we should trust in the providence of God which affords us security and satisfaction. Resting in 
Him and His faithful provision. Resting in Matthew 6. Seek me and my righteousness first and all these things will be provided to you. How can you trust that? Because look at the birds. Look at the grass. Who provides for them? I do. And if I provide for them, will I not provide for you? The Lord blesses His people who live by faith in God's providence. His beloved, He says, are given sleep. This is a picture of rest and comfort and peace, is it not? In the first verse and a half, we see a picture of restlessness. We see anxiety. I would say it's a fitting description of our modern society. Racing about, burning the proverbial candle at both ends, medicating our minds and souls with anything we can get our hands on. Whether it be alcohol or other forms of drugs, whether it be possessions or experiences or vacations or entertainment, whatever it is, we're using all kinds of things to try to medicate our chaotic and frenzied souls to try to find some level of peace, to find meaning in life. To find contentment and satisfaction in life. The psalmist says all these things will end in futility and emptiness. The only way you're going to find true contentment and peace is resting in God's providence. And that He will bring sleep to the frenzied mind. We do this by faith. We do this by faith. Octavius Winslow. You've probably never heard of him. Until a few weeks ago, I hadn't heard of him. He's named Octavius because he was the eighth in his family, born. Interesting, right? I guess you ran out of creativity by that point. Octavius Winslow, he's a Puritan. Listen to what he says about faith. Faith, his premise here, is precious. Faith is a gift from God. It's not something that you and I conjure up inside of us. It is something that God gifts us with, the ability to faith and trust Him. Faith is precious. This is what he says. It has a powerful faculty of sight and of extraction. It can see both sides of the guiding pillar, the cloudy and the bright. It can extract a a smile from God's frown, love from God's displeasure, mercy from God's judgment, encouragement from God's refusal. Hope from God's delays can find a door of hope in the valley of Acre and can sing as sweetly in the dreary night season as in the bright and sunny day. Faith can see light and darkness, can produce harmony from discord, and can gather encouragement from defeat. And dipping its pencil in the darkest colors of sad and gloomy providences can trace upon the canvas of the Christian's life some of its most brilliant and cheerful pictures." Such is the strength of faith operating in our lives to turn us to a providence-oriented God, a God who is working to accomplish His purposes, His ends, which always speak for our good. The psalmist's proposition is that trusting in the providence of God, leaning into the providence of God, enables us to know To know the meaning of life, the real meaning of life, and to rest in the contentment that we have in Him. And He gives us an illustration. Some people say that these two parts, verses 1 and 2, should be separate from verses 3 and 5. That they have nothing to do with one another. But I believe that we see exactly what I've told you leading into this. We see a proposition. We see 
a principle, if you will, that's uttered, trusting in God, not in ourselves. Let the Lord build. Let the Lord do the protecting. Let the Lord do the labor. And then he gives us an illustration of this. He says, for instance, look to the family. Look to children. Consider God's gifts. His gift of children is a blessing and a trust. Today that view has changed in our culture, isn't it? People, married couples are waiting later and later to have children. Why? Because they want to get all their ducks in a row. They want to go and experience all of life in the world that they want to experience before they commit to that rearing of children. So what are they saying? They're saying that they see children as more of a burden, not a blessing from the Lord. This is the culture we live in today. We see it played out this week in this absurd argument supporting abortion against life. I mean, why, why would you, what is the basic argument for abortion if it's not to preserve my own life and freedom to do as I will with my body, what I want, even at the expense that someone else has to die? If I took a gun out today and used that, used that philosophy in encountering people on the street, I'd be put in jail. I would be condemned to, to, to die myself. Why is it that we have sanctified this murderous decision to take innocent life and cast it away like rubbish? This has been the most remarkable week in my life, I think, I never thought I would see the day where we might see this decision of 1973 in this country overturned. You think God's providence is not alive and well? Think of all those people that have labored hard and long over the last 50 years toward this end. I don't know how it's going to end, but I know that it's a positive, it's a positive place that we're in today. A lot more positive than it's been in the past. And we pray that God will see it through. And that there might be, there just might be some hope for our culture after all. We see children as burdens. People see children as limiting their lives. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's not important that we see the responsibility that's involved in rearing children and that we plan for our futures and do a good job of those things. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying we have moved those down the line. I mean, what was the, what was the uh, direction that God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He didn't say, go and enjoy the creation I've made for you. Did he? No, that's not what he said. What did he say? He gave them a very simple instruction. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And by the way, I've provided everything you need to do that. We think our freedoms and pleasures will be suppressed through children. We think our financial responsibilities, food and education and all those things will be uh, somehow, will be find ourselves in poverty. We think, our, we think about our children's success and power and position and until we're ready to give that to them. We're not ready to have them. The psalmist uses three words to describe children in this passage. He says that they are a heritage. In other words, they are an inheritance, a possession from the Lord. An inheritance is a gift, isn't it? 
It's not typically a wage that's earned. An inheritance has value, actual worth, or sentiment. An inheritance brings with it a great opportunity. An inheritance is an opportunity, but it includes a serious responsibility. It requires responsible use. Some inheritances are put into trust for the beneficiary. It requires care. It requires faithful stewardship. It requires development. It's the heir's possession, a gift with responsibility to nurture, to cultivate, to mature it toward righteousness and wisdom. As Luke read earlier, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Raise him up in the admonition of the Lord. If you want your child, if you hope that your child will see the Lord for who he is and live a life that's pleasing and honoring to the Lord, then you must lay that foundation from the moment he comes into this world. Don't expect him to receive it by osmosis. The responsibility to do this is the number one responsibility God gives to a parent. He's not giving you children so that you might ensure that they're successful in this world. He's not giving you children so that you can uh, develop some kind of life-changing generational wealth moving forward for your family. That's not the purpose. It's not even his purpose to see that you raise up children who will provide a positive contribution to society and humane causes. The responsibility is that you might raise up those who will worship the Lord, your God, in truth and in spirit. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and what firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You can search the ancient languages all you want to. You can't make these verses say anything different. They say it plainly. They say it forthrightly. This is God's plan. They are an inheritance, a heritage for you. Not only are children an inheritance, but they are a reward. A reward. The word means recompense or pay. A dividend. A dividend for a marriage. Stress is the joyful benefit from God for a marriage. Israelites saw children as the greatest enrichment God could give. In the ancient world, life was very fragile. Infant mortality was high. A child that lived and flourished was valuable and worthy of praise. No true believer would dare neglect or abuse such a gift from God. One of the hardest things I have to struggle with, in my, if we talk about having our own demons, my, my inner demon that I struggle with is trying to understand the abuse of children in this world. I have trouble reconciling that with the providence of God. I'll be honest with you. I know. I'm not arguing against the providence of God. I'm just saying that's the hardest thing I struggle with is 
how can adults who have been entrusted with this responsibility of caring and nurturing and raising up worshipers of God, how can we allow ourselves to do harm to these innocent beings? We often think and give more care and concern and compassion toward animal life than we do children of our own species. Children are a gift from God, a reward for this institution of marriage. Thirdly, children are also called fruit from the womb. They're compared to fruit from a tree or a plant. Fruitfulness is critical for sustenance, for provision. Adam and Eve indeed were instructed to be fruitful and multiply. It speaks to the vibrancy and life of the marriage and the family. He also tells us that God's gift of children is important for the family's future security. He compares children to arrows in the hand of a warrior. We've all seen it, right? We've seen the television show. We've seen uh, the movie where the guys are pinned down by adversaries coming in. And, you know, the guy looks at his partner and says, I got one round left. Right? You've seen that, right? And we all feel and commiserate with his lack of confidence. He's got one round left and many enemies out there. But on the other hand, if you've got a lot of ammunition... You feel a little bit confident, right? Going into the battle. And he's comparing children to ammunition in a war. It's an interesting analogy. Should parents who have children defend, honor their property, their possessions? He's saying that the family has security given by God through these arrows in the quiver. Jonathan, you have a great future in front of you, brother. (laughs) And that may cause some of the rest of you to think about adding some to your arsenal, right? A family, we've seen this in our own country. We don't see it much anymore, but a family in agricultural societies... You know, a family has acreage, and that's all they really owned. And so they, would, they needed lots of hands on deck to raise crops. This is how the family sustained itself. And so there's this picture of this kind of thinking here in this text. That as the matriarch and the patriarch age and become weaker and more vulnerable, not able to defend and care for the possessions they have, not able to fend off enemies that would come, or even those who would threaten them uh, to take their possessions away, that they needed the vibrancy and the strength of the next generation to surround them and add security to the family. And this is a gift from God, he says. This is the way God brings protection and sustenance to a family. Security. I've seen this so often as a pastor. You see the mother and the dad grow older and begin to break down physically, and the children 
rally around and began to care for and take and assume the responsibility. Those who were once cared for by the mother and father now become the caregivers, providing security in their old age. I've watched it and I've lived it. God's providence is a wonderful comfort to those who trust Him to know that He is always working toward His perfect purposes. Nothing that enters my life, nothing that enters your life is incompatible with God's purposes. This is what He's saying. Nothing. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the promotion I missed at work? Mm -hmm. What about the exam I bombed at school? What about the flat tire that made me late for an important appointment? What about the missed flight at the airport? What about the refrigerator breaking down? Or, well, Pastor, are you saying all, all these things? If you believe that God is truly all-powerful, God could stop those things, right? And He doesn't. He ordains those things for our life. Why? Here's the question. The question is not, oh Lord, please take it away. But the question is, oh Lord, what is it that you're saying to me? What is it that you're doing? How are you moving things toward your ultimate perfect purpose through these issues? How is it that you're shaping me and making me more like Christ through them? Not how should I resist them? But Lord, help me know how to embrace them. That you might be honored and glorified and that your purposes will be realized. Have you had one of those weeks where everything seems to implode? Everything you touch, you get one thing fixed and something else breaks? And you don't like those very much, do you? I don't. I don't. But the older I get, the more of them I seem to have. But I think God is holding me accountable for the light that I have from His Word. Back years ago, when I didn't really understand this or know this, I could resist those things with a good conscience. Now, I must realize that God is working His purposes in spite of everything I feel about the things that are happening around me and to me. My responsibility is to learn how to embrace them, Lord, to recognize how you are using them to achieve your perfect ends. God is actively, purposely ruling, moving all things, working toward His perfect conclusions. Trusting in His providence is where we discover meaning for life, where we find satisfaction at all times in life, and where we can rest for true security in life. Anything less is futile and empty. And Father, we thank You and bless You for who You are. Lord, how You work in our lives, what You promise and what You do in our lives. Give us eyes, Lord, to see as You would have us see and know. Give us, Lord, the ability, the faith that we need to rest in your providence, always, at all times. Not just when things are good, to jump up and down excitedly and to give thanks for you, 
and your gifts to us, but Lord, to recognize the hardships, the difficulties, the challenges, Lord, the sadness, the, the distress that seems to prevail upon us, and to recognize that you too are using and working this to your ends in us, through us, for your glory. Oh, Father, give us the ability to rest in your providence no matter what's taking place. No matter what's taking place. May it, Lord, have an impact upon the way that we pray our prayers. May it have a way, uh, impact upon the way that we, uh, Lord, share the gospel. May it have an impact upon the way that we live and walk through the changing tides and seasons of this life in this world. And as we anticipate your return, May we do so with great, great peace, great comfort, great expectation and anticipation when you will make all things new and you will reveal to us, Lord, how you've been making all things new all this time. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.